Good morning, and welcome to Christ the King. Especially if you are visiting, we're glad you're here, and we hope that you're blessed by our worship today. My name is Chris Corley, and I'm one of the elders here at CTK. Pastor Tim, as you heard earlier, is out of town, and he asked me a couple of months ago if I would be willing to preach this Sunday, so here I am. As you know, if you have been here for Sunday morning worship any of the past few Sundays, Tim recently started a sermon series on Revelation. We heard last week about the elders worshiping him who is seated on the throne, declaring him worthy to receive glory and honor and power. So here is a sneak preview of next week. John, to whom all these events are being revealed, weeps loudly because no one is found worthy to open the scroll that is sealed with seven seals. But of course, we know that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, Jesus, the main character of the story of Revelation, has already conquered and is worthy to open the scroll. So rather than continue on with Revelation, Tim and I thought it would be good for me to use Colossians 1 as a basis for addressing the preeminence of Christ. To be preeminent means to surpass in excellence, to stand out even among those who stand out. Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians in response to false teaching, probably coming from one particular false teacher within the church. Some of that false teaching involved worship of angels, which is mentioned in Colossians 2. And Paul's argument in this epistle is that Christ has defeated the powers of darkness on the cross and that believers participate with him and through him in new life and union with God. But none of that would be possible were Christ not the supreme ruler of all cosmic powers which, of course, he is. Christ is preeminent. So let's turn together to this morning's scripture reading, Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. You can find this on page 983 of the Blue Bibles if you have one from the back of the sanctuary. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Let's now turn to God in prayer to ask for his help in understanding this passage. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, source of all goodness and wisdom, please enlighten our hearts and minds today as we study this passage from your holy word. I ask that you cover over any errors in my speech and words so that everyone hears only your truth this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. 
O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There have been many church heresies over the centuries that have threatened to, or in some cases actually have, divided the church. The common thread running through many of these heresies has been confusion and outright misunderstanding of who Christ is. Was Christ just a good teacher who did God's will better than any other human in history? This idea, which is not uncommon today, traces back to the 3rd and 4th centuries. But of course, there are many today who say the same thing. Some of these people even attend church regularly. But today's passage and all of Paul's letter to the Colossians clearly tells us something different. Paul tells the church in Colossae later in this same letter that they should walk in Christ Jesus, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith just as they were taught. Why is this important? So that the Colossians not be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition and not according to Christ. Paul is telling this church nearly 2,000 years ago something that all of us need to hear today, something that all churches through the ages have needed and will continue to need to hear. Christ is worthy of our worship, our praise, our thanksgiving. Only through Christ can we be inoculated against false teaching and empty philosophy. Only through Christ can we be filled with new life. Only through Christ can we, who left to our own devices are truly dead in our trespasses, can we be made alive with Him. Why is Christ worthy of our praise and worship? Paul outlines his answer to this question in today's passage. A short summary of these verses, which will serve as my outline, tells us that Christ is the pre-existent, preeminent Prince of Peace. Paul calls Christ the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. This echoes what Paul had written in his second letter to the Corinthians a few years earlier. Christ, he said, is the image of God. And we also hear this at the beginning of the letter to the Hebrews. Christ is the exact imprint of God. Christ did not just appear as if he were God. He was not sort of like God. He did not merely obey God during his time on earth, though of course he did obey God. Much more than that, Christ is God, the exact imprint. He was with God before the beginning. The phrase firstborn of all creation should not be understood to mean a literal birth in the human sense and not even a spiritual birth as if Christ were somehow created by God. Remember, Christ is pre-existent before all things and Christ is God, the exact imprint of his nature. Rather, firstborn here is likely referring in human terms to the rights and privileges accorded a firstborn son especially the son of a monarch who shares in and eventually inherits ruling sovereignty. This is similar to how King David is described in Psalm 89. We hear that God will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. In the next verse, we are told that all things were created through Christ. 
This might bring to mind what John says in the first chapter of his gospel. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made. All things in heaven, all things on earth, all things in the Milky Way galaxy, all galaxies, everything in between, all things were made through Christ. By Christ were created all things visible and invisible. I love the beginning of the Nicene Creed, which reminds us that God is the creator of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. As material beings living in a material world, we need frequent reminders that there is an invisible realm as well as a material realm and that we ourselves are spiritual as well as material beings created by God and through Christ. Some of the false teaching happening within the Colossian church, as I mentioned earlier, involves some sort of worship of angels. In the next phrase of verse 16, immediately after telling us that through Christ were created all things visible and invisible, Paul lists thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. He was probably reminding the Colossians that their worship should be directed to Christ not to powers or authorities created through and for Christ. As the preeminent Lord of all creation, the first and the highest, Christ rules over these thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. This should be a great comfort to us as the pre-existent, preeminent creator through whom and by whom all things were created Nothing in all of creation is outside of his control. Nothing is outside of his authority. And ultimately, nothing can or will escape his holy justice. Verse 17 tells us that Christ is before all things. Did you notice the verb tense? Interestingly, it does not say Christ was before all things, but rather Christ is before all things. Jesus said something similar about himself in John 8:58 when he was talking to the Jewish leadership in the temple. He said to them, "Before Abraham was, I am." Of course, this should remind us of God's words to Moses from the burning bush, "Tell them, I am sent you." If all things were created through and for Christ, this must include time itself, something that is hard or even impossible to, to describe in human terms. Before even the existence of time, Christ is. We read in Second Peter chapter 3 that with Christ, a thousand years is as one day, and one day is as a thousand years. I can only interpret this paradoxical statement to mean that Christ is not limited to the human perception of time, as existing only in the past, present, and future in some sort of linear sense. Verse 17 continues by saying that in Christ all things hold together. Limited humans are able to perceive time as a progression of past, present, and future only because of Christ's good and perfect rule over it. All of the natural world holds together because of Christ's good and perfect rule over it. As a science teacher, I'm going to digress a little bit, um, I think that the laws of nature, the workings of forces, gravity, atomic bonds, 
chemical reactions, all the things that we study in science are continually being held together through Christ, the pre-existent creator. I think it is unfortunate that in our culture today there is a false narrative of war between science and Christian faith. An essential part of being good stewards of God's world is to exercise dominion over it and we can best do that by understanding his creation. The business of science is to investigate and learn more about the world that God has created and a desire to better understand God's creation has been a powerful motivator for scientists from the beginning of modern science. Science and Christianity are not at war. A strictly materialistic view of the world in which the reality of the invisible the spiritual world is denied, this is a false teaching that we should certainly guard against. But this false philosophy, this empty deceit, is not inherent to science itself, in spite of what the world might wish us to believe. Christ is Lord. He is preeminent over all of his creation, over all things visible and invisible, both within and beyond the realm of science scientific investigation. What else does it mean for Christ to be preeminent? He is the head of his body, the church. He is the author, the leader, the sustainer of the church. Unlike in the Jewish priestly system in which the high priest changed periodically from one to another of the temple priests, Jesus is permanently our great high priest the eternal head of his body, the church. Christ is also the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything, in life and in death and in heaven, he precedes us. He is the first and the highest, the only Holy One, and he intercedes for us at the throne of God. He has created a way for us to enter our eternal rest in God through Christ. Christ is the pre-existent, pre-eminent Lamb of God who is worthy to open the seals of the scroll that we will hear about next week when Pastor Tim preaches on Revelation 5. Finally, Christ is the Prince of Peace in whom all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. Just as God's presence and glory filled the tabernacle and then the temple in the Old Testament, Christ is filled with God's glory and his presence. All that God is, his glory, his wisdom, his power, his love, his mercy, and his spirit, all of these dwell in Christ. This is only possible, of course, because Christ is God. And we receive blessings from this fullness as well. Again, referring back to the beginning of the Gospel of John, we hear that from the fullness of Christ we have all received grace upon grace. This grace upon grace is God's unmerited favor to us that brings us peace from the Prince of Peace. Through this fullness, God reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Verse 16 told us that by Christ were all things created in heaven and on earth, and now in verse 20, we hear that all things on earth and in heaven are reconciled to God. He made peace with us. 
while we were still enemies of God, rebelling against his holy and righteous rule, he made peace with us. He provided a way for us to return to him, to be reconciled to him. Why would God do this? Certainly not because we deserve it, not because we have earned it. God did this for us because he loves us and to show forth his glory. How did he do this? He did this, of course, making peace by the blood of the Prince of Peace on the cross. By the cross, the ultimate symbol of Roman domination over anyone who dared oppose their authority, the cross, the symbol of violence and humiliation, the Prince of Peace conquered sin and death, reconciling to himself all things. So what does it mean for Christ to be preeminent in your life? The question is not whether Christ is preeminent in your life. I think today's passage clearly tells us that Christ is preeminent over all things. The question is whether you acknowledge this truth. I would like to suggest three ways for you to think about the implications of Christ's preeminence. Really three all-encompassing ways in terms of your past, your present, and your future. If you are a Christian, I expect that you can point to particular key events in your life when God was guiding you or protecting you or bringing some particular positive person or influence into your life. And you can point to these people and influences through which God called you to himself. Thank God for these times. Christ has been preeminent over your past. When you face challenges and stresses in the present, remembering Christ's preeminence at earlier times in your life can and should be a great comfort. And it helps you to remember that Christ is preeminent over whatever present difficulties you face. What does it mean to acknowledge Christ's preeminence in your life in the present? Over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus commands us to love one another. I can say that I see you all doing that very well here at Christ the King, and it is a great encouragement to me in my faith. When folks outside the church see us loving each other well in community as the body of Christ, they are likely to be drawn toward and recognize that love. So keep loving each other well. Keep loving everyone who walks through these doors every week. But Christ also says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. When we keep God's commandments, we are abiding in his love. Our first love, our true and our highest affection should be for Christ and for abiding in his love. What things in your life, what things in my life are competing for our highest affection. Remembering that Christ is preeminent can help us rightly order our affections and orient them toward him. As for the future, we will be hearing a lot about that as Tim continues his sermon series in Revelation. Christ will open the seven seals of the scroll. He will fight the powers of death and darkness of both the material and the spiritual world. Revelation is an unveiling for John and now for us of Christ's preeminence in the future at the end of human history. 
And ultimately, all believers from all nations and tongues in this beautiful picture near the end of Revelation will join together, praising God at his throne, saying, Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. This should encourage us as well. Christ has defeated. Christ is currently defeating. Christ will ultimately defeat the powers of sin and death and darkness. The Revelation future is, present tense, is true, not just future tense. Revelation is true. If you are a Christian, then Christ, who is the creator of time, has moved your judgment day from the future into the past. He has reconciled you to himself, making peace with you by the blood of his cross. Our weekly confession of sin corporately and yours and my private confession of sin continually moves our judgment from the future into the past. Your eternal life with Christ has already begun. Thanks be to God for this unimaginably good gift. If you are not a Christian, then I urge you to think about the fact that there will be a judgment day for all of us. Christ wants to move your judgment day from the future into the past. He is calling to you. Christ has made peace with all things in heaven and on earth by the blood of his cross. But there can be no peace with Christ without a surrender to him. What would it mean for you to surrender to Christ? What is the main barrier to you doing that today? Please talk to someone you know and trust who is a Christian if you have questions. Talk to your parents if you are a younger person. Talk to Pastor Tim or to me or one of the other elders or deacons. We would love to talk with you about surrendering your life to Christ. All the fullness of God dwells in Christ, making peace by the blood of his cross. I will close with words from Revelation chapter 3. Pastor Tim said a couple of weeks ago that this passage certainly can be interpreted evangelically as a call to non-believers, but more than that, these are words to a particular church and to church members. Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, he's saying to us, even and especially if we are Christians, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, and I will eat with him and he with me. I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne, as also I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, preeminent Christ Jesus, we praise you this morning for your glory, your power, your wisdom, your good and perfect rule over all of creation. You have made peace with us through the blood of your cross. Please turn our hearts towards you in thanksgiving for this amazing life-giving gift. Please orient our affections toward you. Please change us through the power of your Holy Spirit to acknowledge your preeminence, to abide in your love, and to extend your love and grace to others in all of our daily life. Lord, we love you. 
And we ask that you give us grace and strength to glorify you in all that we do. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray all these things. Amen.